think I'd like to uh, start today with uh, a poem from uh, Naomi Shihab Nye. Um, excerpts from her poem. She's uh, an American uh, poet uh, from uh, Palestinian uh, uh, descent. Uh, and so her poem is called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho <coughs> lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and a simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that uh, ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. And so this poem, maybe to bring about uh, one, of the, um, one of the other qualities of the heart, that is the compassion. And I actually was teaching a lot this week, so I cannot remember where I said what. <laughs> and... Uh, so did I contextualize meta in the in the four qualities of the heart here? I'm not, I don't think I did. So uh, thank you for helping me along. Um, so in the Buddhist psychology, there's a, um, there's this group of qualities of the heart. There's four qualities, and they work together. And uh, meta is one of uh, these qualities. So it's this basic wish for well-being that we have for ourselves and other, others, this benevolence that is not, uh, it's not a love that is passionate. It's not a love that uh, c 
comes with one thing to possess. Uh, it's not a love that uh, that uh, triggers us and uh, inflames us, and often will leave us also feeling disappointed or lonely after. You know that something like this. It's a different bereft. bereft thank you. And so it's a love that is uh, is free, that is um, healing, that is uh, is actually can be uh, these four qualities are called immeasurables because they're not exclusive. They it's said that they can be developed to uh, they their development is without end. There's no end to, for example, the number of beings that can be held in uh, these qualities of uh, metta or compassion is another one. Another one we explored uh, lightly, and that's probably a good way to, to explore that quality of the heart. Another one is uh, mudita, or the capacity to rejoice uh, in the good fortune of others, or to rejoice, the joy aspect. And the last quality is equanimity. So today I want to explore a little bit these uh, these uh, four qualities. And so the second one, uh, compassion here, is uh, so there's this wish for well-being, this benevolence, this goodwill that is uh, present in one's heart or mind when not the heart is not obstructed or s- uh, tight or defended or guarded. You know, spontaneously this heart is radiant, responsive, caring. And when this caring quality meets difficulty, the difficult for self or for others, it becomes what we call compassion, the capacity to care for what is, uh, for suffering, for difficulties, for, um, for what is hard, yeah? And this quality of compassion again, is not, is not born in a vacuum. It's not like, oh, let me be compassionate. Compassion, it's said in these teachings, and you can check it out for yourself, it says that compassion arises through a quality connection with what is difficult. Not a, qua- a, a, a connection where we shut down or judge or blame, or, but a, a, a quality connection. And this is what we're doing here this weekend, trying to develop a capacity not only this, we're visiting, all, we're developing all these qualities through the development of metta, but particularly this one, it's this, uh, this touching what is difficult with a mind that is uh, has stability to it, and is able to really feel, not feel and uh, you know shy away or you know bypass. It's going to be okay. It's okay. no, just. Touch in, feel, and uh, on retreat here we have uh, a lot of opportunities to develop this, don't we? You know, through uh, just uh, the physicality of sitting, not moving for several minutes, will uh, bring uh, the difficult, the difficulties of having a body, you know, the difficulties of having bones and organs and systems and. Uh, and, and a heart and a mind. Um, it says in the teaching that uh, uh, the difficulties of having a body are, hid, are hidden by movements. 
So in our life, we move. When we move, it's usually to release some difficulty of the body. You know, so you're in bed, and at some point you'll turn. Why? Why would you turn? Because it's getting uncomfortable. Even in the lazy boy, you'll have to stand at some point and go pee <laughs> because it's uncomfortable. When you go to work, it's probably to buy a new mattress or a flat screen TV to entertain this thing. You know, to to in French we say changer le mal de place. You know, <laughs> like you you, uh, you move around. So when you eat, it's to relieve feeling of hunger that would come. You know, or in many cases, for us, it's also to relieve boredom, something also difficult. So we move towards ice cream because there's a discomfort <laughs> in the body, you know. And uh, we drink and we wash because it would be uncomfortable, the smell that would come out of this thing, you know, if we didn't brush it and, you know, and uh, take care of it. And so, and when we sit here, suddenly it becomes obvious that being embodied is not an easy thing. And so it's also an opportunity to open the heart, to learn to care, oh my God, having a body, you know. And that's the universal nature of it that can also uh, uh, stand out. It's like, wow, I'm in it with others. We're all in in the same experience. There's mi- There's... We're all in the same experience, and there's multiplicity. There's many different experiences within that. But we're all in bodies with organs that will at some point fail, you know? We're all in bodies that are not always aligned and centered and light and floating in space, you know? We all have to deal with gravity. And so this this practice here is uh, to develop compassion for ourselves, our particular experience, but also, it's a it's a, per, a it's a a doorway to all beings. This is what this practice is. We sit here in the middle of all beings, because all beings experience difficulties in the body, experience difficulties in the psyche, confusion, uh, wanting to be somewhere else, somebody else, etc. All the hindrances that I talked about. We sit in silence, in the middle of this, and we don't divert the attention. This is why it needs courage, and courage is being developed. It needs humility, and humility is being developed again and again. Every (laughs) few minutes, there's some bad news happening in this system, you know. And we sit here, and and we are touched by this. This is why we come here. And the opening of the heart is often, again, a stretching open of the heart, you know, uh, tearing open of the heart. Uh, and uh, and so we sit here with uh, the body, but also with the mind and heart, again, with the loneliness, with the confusion. And all these, and the teaching, it says, these are not yours, they don't belong to you, they're of the public domain. <laughs> you know, people, this. 2,600 years ago, people were experiencing confusion, were were being separated from what they wanted, maybe a little bit or in a big way, you know, as we are, as you are, you know, uh, from time to time, or I would say even go as far as saying regularly, daily, you know, having to deal with something you don't want to be with, you know. And so that's a human experience, and it's in the sitting, sitting courageously or walking courageously with this, 
uh, attending to this that uh, compassion is developed, the capacity to be with what is difficult uh, without losing ground. And again, this is got done ex- extremely unevenly, uh, crookedly. You know, it's not done cleanly. It's not possible. I've never met somebody who's done this development of the heart cleanly. It just doesn't happen. And it's not like a straight line from A to B. It's it's usually a really strange line. <laughs> shape it takes, you know. And that's how it is. Yeah. Um, so this is this quality of, uh, of compassion. The other quality that is really important in the field is the quality of mudita, the capacity to enjoy and rejoice and be nurtured by the beauty of the world. And these are... In a way, they're not separate. And I think I had never been so aware of this um, until uh, not so long ago. I, was, uh, I had the chance to be on a retreat with uh, a large amount of people and many teachers. And one of the teachers who was uh, in the team of, uh, there one night organized uh, a circle for the whole hundred people. And she said, we're going to do a mudita circle. So we're going to share stories of joy together. And so you'll be able to come in the middle. And we did it in the, maybe you know, this form of the fishbowl, where everybody's sitting in the big circle, and there's four seats in the middle, and people come in and out and share their stories. So it makes it very intimate, because there's a group of four, but there's a hundred witnesses. Yeah. And so she said, and she, I don't know how she, I can't remember how she presented it, but she was very skilled because there was this space made. And also we had been together for sitting like this, tenderized, right? Sensitized. And con, in French I would say conscientisé, like uh, having a lot of consciousness about human experience, you know, and the human nature, the... the, the the human predicament, what it is like to be in relationship and be in bodies and hearts and minds and stories and and cultures and uh, you know. Uh, anyway, there was this. Uh, so she created this beautiful circle. Uh, <coughs> might have been, uh, you know, I can't remember what she did. There was, there was some. It was ritualized a bit, you know calling the directions, maybe, and uh, drawing from other uh, uh, wisdom uh, uh, traditions. And people came and shared their stories of joy. And it could have been called a circle of compassion or circle of metta, or circle of... Because the stories of joy were so enmeshed with the stories of heartbreaks of our lives. Um, I remember, I mean, several several things happened, but amongst the many things that, stories that were told, there's two uh, women, two mother who came to tell of the death of their child. Uh, one had lost their teenager and one their adult child. And they were coming in the circle to share a story of joy uh, 
the joy of this beautiful being that they had met and, and the joy of the last uh, few months of their lives and the courage and the beauty and the gratitude that they, uh, they, were, uh, they were expressing and had felt of having had the chance to meet these beings and be there uh, close to them. And another person came and shared the story of a difficult time, but the joy and the gratitude for the friendship that had uh, been so helpful. And, uh, and so this is our lives. This is our lives where the joy and the sorrows are so neighbor and uh, leads to one another. And can we allow that? And I think that is what we do here, is we sit in the middle of the confusion to appreciate the clarity. We sit in the middle of the sorrow to appreciate the compassion that can hold the sorrow. And I think Naomi Shihab Nye expresses this really well. And in the teaching it says it's so important that we have access to the mudita, the uh, gratitude, the joy, the uh, rejoicing, because otherwise we could easily get stuck in the world of compassion and in the world of the difficult to the um, exclusion of others, uh, the beauty of life. You know? And so it's our practice as meditators to open the gaze and, 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 and really witness the whole of it. And the skill of the practice is to know when the heart is going down like this, to notice to, that it needs refreshment and what will be refreshing here. And many of you have described the beauty of nature here and trees and birds and how this for many of us is refreshing and how it's important and skillful to give this to oneself, to give access to this, to see it, to notice it. Um, and so sometimes we think there's an avoidance, like I, I turn away, but often it's actually very skillful to turn away for a while to regain some kind of ground and confidence. When there's a very strong emotion in us, in this practice, we say when it's very, very strong, so strong that it feels like the entire universe is in grief or in anxiety or like we, to actually look take the courage, the, it takes some remembrance also, like that's not easy to, to look some, there might be something in the field that is not in anxiety how are the fingers the earlobes how are the toes you know, to maybe find that there is not that depth of sorrow and overwhelm uh, in that region of the body or if it's not in the body then it's in the landscape or in sound you know opening the eyes here and seeing, oh, there is some calm in this room, you know, there is some care in this room. I don't have access to it, but it's there. Or in any uh, ways that uh, you know works for you. And the fourth quality is uh, the quality of equanimity. So uh, equanimity 
often is presented as the highest quality in the Buddhist psychology, the closest quality to what we would call nirvana, or a full, uh, ir- uh, unconditional uh, opening of the heart. You know? And so equanimity is uh, a capacity to... Um, it's the quality that helps us not fall in the extreme. The extremes of, in the case of metta, would be attachment, clinging, uh, in or sentimentality. Uh, something of that nature, you know. A, a kind of love that would be really shaky and unstable and, uh, and maybe heavy for others to receive, <laughs> you know. And uh, the extreme in the case of uh, compassion, there are many. There's the shutting down, there's the despair, uh, there's the blaming, there's the guilt tripping, you know, when something is difficult to blame oneself, uh, like uh, without wisdom, you know. In the case of uh, joy, the extreme, one of them could be exuberance, a kind of joy that is disconnected from reality that cannot hold the fullness of life. And, uh, for me, one of the best examples of this is a kid sometimes when they get exuberance, they forget about gravity. You know, they're standing up on the back of chairs and you're like, whoa, hold on. You're not plugged in reality here. <laughs> that's that's got to hurt, you know. That joy is going to turn really sour very quickly or could, you know. And so the equanimity is the capacity to... Uh, it's equilibrium, equanimity, equilibrium, balance, the balance of mind that uh, uh, actually gives, it's what gives uh, the other qualities strength and duration and makes them not exclusive. You know, I'll have compassion just for this situation, not for other, I don't care about the rest. It makes, it gives it breath um, and uh, stability. Um And equanimity, like compassion, is not free. It has a kind of a cost. Often these things I was saying this morning, often this it seems like the cost is really high when we're developing these qualities. But when we gain a great access to them, it seems after that it was cheap, actually. That it was not that costly. But while you know, you're developing compassion and your heart is being thrown like uh, tear, teared open... It hurts so much. It seems like the cost is often too high. I don't want. I don't want to. It's too. It's too expensive. Yeah. And often later we'll find actually no. It w- it's the price. This is such a noble, uh, powerful quality uh, that it. Uh, of course, it's going to have a price. And equanimity uh, is not also uh, just a. a a result of will. Okay, let me be equanimous. It just doesn't work like this, right? Because we've tried that. Okay, I'm not going to feel anything about this. So, which, feel anything, by the way, would not be equanimity. So equanimity is not indifference. Is not, and often there'll be kind of a, a misunderstanding of this in Buddhist, uh, uh, when we think of Buddhist practice or Buddhist thought, like, Oh, you want to be detached from the world, you know, which is actually a misunderstanding. It comes maybe from wrongly translating some of the Pali words. Uh, One description that uh, 
uh, one teacher, um, Darlene Cohen, uh, uh, I know it, that's something else, I'm, I'm mixing things. I like her. Uh, I'll say that, that's not what I was going to say, but I'll say this because I just named her. And she was talking about equanimity, and she was saying um, an expression of equanimity for her, which I recognize in me, and you might or might not, but she was saying, you know, when you're in that field uh, of equanimity, for sure, you know, trees and flowers are beautiful. They, they clearly are beautiful, but so are beer cans and microwaves. <laughs> it's a kind of a, it's a, and a, a, an old description of equanimity is uh, being equally near to all things. So it's a feeling of intimacy, of closeness with everything, the difficult, the beautiful, <coughs> the neutral, the ugly, a kind of like a falling of preferences or maybe not living firstly through preferences but preferences maybe being in the background or in the field, but it's not this. It's the quality of presence to what is happening. So can you see that we're developing this here? Because here we don't, uh, you know, we're giving us a a kind of a setup uh, where the sitting and walking and a few other things around that, but basically we're just like little, uh, sometimes it appears to me like little chicken, you know, like little... Like we're sitting on our eggs, you know, the egg, egg of awakening. And we're just sitting there, you know. And at some point we just stand up and we go walk a little bit. And after we come back. And in that, in that simple form where we're not like, it's not the spa here. You're not like, oh, do I go to that sitting or not? Or do, do I prefer the mud bath or this mud and saran wrap bath? <laughs> <laughs> you know, or do I, you know, it's not so much like there's a little bit of this, but mostly we're just showing up, you know, we're showing up. And we learn to be in the middle of this life, you know, and sometimes it's uh, joy and sometimes it's sorrow and sometimes it's uh, acquiring something is lending there that we want and sometimes it's losing it. And so the vicissitude, the great winds that we talk about again in Buddhism, the wind of gain and lust, the wind of pleasure and pain, and everything in between, and the, the wind of uh, pride and the, the wind of shame, and the wind, and we learn to sit in the middle of that and feel it and get to know it and be awake to it, not, uh, not asleep, not entranced by, but awake, whoa, wash of confusion, wash of self-criticism, wash of kindness, wash of space, or, you know, uh, wave of uh, whatever wave visits us. Yeah. Or neutrality, and there might be a lot of that in the field. Just even can we be in the middle of nothing? This is uh, how we develop <coughs> equanimity. Equanimity also is particularly empowered or... Uh, cultivated by (coughs) noticing the impermanence of things, how things are ephemeral. You know, I'm like, oh, I want to stay here. I wish it was a few more days, you know, and 20 minutes later, get me out of here. (laughs) You know? And so by seeing not only the events, not feeling the events themselves, the phenomena themselves, but noticing their transient nature, 
that is how equanimity really finds its place in the heart by acknowledging, noticing the appearing, disappearing, the presence, the absence of anything, you know, taste. You put something in your mouth, wow, explosion of cold ice cream, vanilla, you know, and a few seconds after, gone, inexistent, you know, sense of pride, you know, I'm it. In the meditation world, I'm it right now, you know, so centered and open and, and oh my God, oh my God, <laughs> am I losing it, you know? <laughs> and so seeing the impermanence of things, seeing, seeing also the, uh, in the teaching very, uh, very at the center of it, the unf- uh, incapacity for phenomena to satisfy us deeply, incapacity for beings to satisfy us deeply, incapacity for whatever it is. If there's something that you're projecting complete satisfaction in, you know, like this will provide when I get that or when I finally am seen like this by somebody or and in the in the close, intimate attention to reality, we start to notice that things are shaky, that they can't actually provide, because even if they keep providing, the fear of them passing or changing uh, removes their capacity to actually provide completely, permanently. Uh, yeah? <coughs> so there's, uh, there's something in it that is, seems like bad news, but is very liberating for a being oh my God, I don't have to think that this is totally going to do it because it's actually not, you know. When you think, oh, when I, I don't know, get that car and then you get the car and then something else comes, you know. You have to insure it and the neighbors play close to it, too close to it, you know, whatever. I use the car as a caricature (laughs) for anything else, And so, you might be learning about this right now, so take it, like, see how you're reacting to this uh, suggestion that I'm making, that nothing will be completely satisfying. The body won't be. It might get kind of aligned for a little while, and then it will fall apart again in some ways, you know. And so that is the birth of compassion. That is the birth of equanimity, the recognition that, wow, this life is a little... uh, Oh, I have the word in French, but in English, I never had it until a couple of weeks ago. Somebody said the word for me, and it vanished. I didn't write it. In French, we say bancal, when a chair has one leg that is a little off. Tipi. Yeah, but there's a longer word that is really strange. Everybody's working really hard right now. Thank you. I'll find it. Anyway, tippy, or what did you say? Unsteady. Unsteady. So life is, uh, in the Buddhist psychology, that's how it's presented, that life is not exactly fitting with the desire of a human being. You know, like it doesn't exactly provide all the time, or have you noticed? (laughs) You You want this to stay, it goes. You want it to go, it stays. (laughs) um, It's almost perfect, except that person... In the office, you know, like everything is a perfect job, it's a f- perfect this and that, and then 
there's that bit, you know, of the job or that bit of the social thing, you know, that something in there is not exactly making it right. And so when we notice this, that's how equanimity comes in. Oh my God. Just by the fact that things are impermanent, they, they're made shaky, you know, because they might be there, but they might go, you know. And so that opens the heart. That also releases the heart. That's uh, the equanimity. Oh, I don't have to get all my eggs in that basket, you know, because it's not going to provide. There's something else that it might provide. The quality of the encounter, you know, the quality of my <coughs> being in this situation, in this mind, in this heart, in this relationship. I was reading a, a book last uh, weekend from uh, Zen Jew, Earthin Manuel, and she. Uh, uh, the title is not complete tenderness, but the way of tenderness. The way of tenderness, the way of tenderness. <coughs> and it almost seems like she's talking about awakening. Is what is awakening? And she uses a lot in the book this expression of complete tenderness. Complete <coughs> tenderness towards everything. For her, in the, in the book, uh, she describes a lot of her uh, awakening or wisdom deepening uh, happens a lot for her through uh, gender, sexuality, and race. And she's a black uh, woman uh, who's a, who's a non-heterosexual, so maybe bi or lesbian. but um, And uh, she describes really well how she's not bypassing this. She's, not, she's using everything, the beauty of, of that, the beauty of the color of her skin, the beauty of, the, of her sexuality and desire, and the, the beauty of her gender, and also the pain that is in there, the oppression that comes with uh, being uh, uh, non-normative or, you know, uh, inner sexuality or the, the pain and the oppression that comes with uh, being in a race that is uh, perceived inferior, inferior uh, uh, by many, you know, and in a systemic way uh, put down, you know, and uh, violated, you know, and a gender also that is, uh, that is uh, not uh, treated as equal, you know, and how her awakening, so it's, she's talking about the four Brahma-viharas there, the equanimity, which means the honesty, the capacity to name and recognize what situation one is in, you know, and the tenderness, the compassion for it, and the love, you know, <coughs> and she talks, I think, even of the caring for the oppressors, oppressors, you know, and caring for their isolations and their <coughs> delusion and the, f the pain they inflict on others and that might be males or that might be white people and that might be heterosexuals and uh, so having compassion uh, for uh, them also uh, 
And so all these, uh, the Buddha was saying, can be developed to... It's impossible, actually. It's one of the imponderables, it's called. You cannot... The Buddha says, don't even try to resolve this, how much compassion can be developed, to what extent, or to what extent equanimity can be developed, or meta-caring benevolence, and to what extent... uh, uh, joy can be developed. Don't even try it. It'll drive you crazy because it's limitless. There can be that much compassion. Uh, the Dalai Lama expresses it at some point when he says, uh, he was saying in an interview, he was talking to one of his uh, fellow Tibetan who had been um, tortured in China. And he asked uh, this man, it happened to be a man, he asked him, what, uh, what was the most dangerous thing that happened to you uh, during your uh, years in prison in, in China? And, and the answer was, uh, he says, was so unexpected for him because he expected uh, you know, that the man would t- tell him about a disease or a particular way he was tortured psychologically or physically. And he said, the most dangerous thing that happened that uh, happened to me is I almost lost my compassion for uh, my uh, uh, jailers, you know, and torturers. Is the and and also the depth of is the wisdom of this being recognizing that this would have been the worst loss to oneself, the capacity to care for uh, for another. So there, to me, we're hitting definitely past my edge, you know, in terms of development of compassion. Uh, yeah and so these four qualities um, in this uh, chant here uh, are present and I I just chanted part of it this morning and uh, maybe I'll uh, uh, I don't know if I should chant it or we I have it for all of us should we try to chant it together yeah so I wonder if a couple of you would be willing to pass uh, these on so everyone should have one of these and everyone should have one of these and you can share it with somebody else. These are two different documents that I would like you to have. And in the shorter one, you'll see that, and we'll uh, chant it together, but it's an expression of the four Brahma Viharas. They're called Brahma Viharas, which translate through, uh, by... Um, the abodes of uh, the divine abodes or the abodes of Brahma. <coughs> and uh, why they're called like this? It's because apparently at the time of the Buddha, there was a belief that uh, of a kind of paradise, you could say, where the place where you wanted to be was with Brahma. When I die, I want to join Brahma. You know, I want to be in Brahma's world. The the god of uh, at that time in that region one of the gods (coughs) and the Buddha when he was teaching was saying Brahma's Brahma's Vihar the temple of Brahma is not actually a destination or a place it's qualities of the heart and mind if you want to hang out with Brahma develop kindness compassion uh, joy and equanimity this will be uh, in a way paradise for you you know And so that was his little uh, 
revolution, one of the things that he was reframing. You know. uh, and so in this chant, the two first uh, paragraphs, first there's a line that invites us to sing them, and then the first two paragraphs are expressions of metta. And the line that says, may all beings be released from all suffering is an expression of compassion. So we focus on the difficult. Then it's mudita. And may they not be parted from the good fortune they have attained. It's the capacity to rejoice and wish uh, uh, well and joy to somebody. And the last one is equanimity. It's one of the different expressions of equanimity. It's a recognition that beings are the owners of their heart. You know, they're the one who can do the inner work. You know, for their own, uh, and they are the owner of their actions also. That if I act in a way that uh, is hateful, this is going to be what's going to be uh, cultivated in that heart, mind, hatred, and all the difficulties that comes with that. And that if one acts in benevolence, uh, act acting in terms of thinking, speaking, or or physically acting. Uh, so it's a recognition maybe of uh, neuroplasticity, basically. <laughs> it says that whatever you reflect on, you know, wires to, what fires together, wires together. From, is that from a Montreal, uh, from, is that from Dr. Penfield, from a Montreal neurologist, no? mm-hmm. famous uh, uh, neurons or fires synapses. Together, wires together. Fires together, wires together. So you give attention to something in a certain way, you you actually are making your brain, uh, uh, you're training your brain to, to, to live in this way. Yeah? So that's a bit of equanimity. Oh, so my, my response, it's, I'm, I'm the owner of my response here. You know? Might not be exactly deciding what's happening, but I can... I can uh, certainly aim and tend and cultivate uh, a certain response to the world you know that's going to be for my own benefit and for the benefit of others so the chant here so the um, the way it goes with these chants is um, very simple there's a kind of a basic I'm so not a music teacher or what <laughs> anything around music I'm basically traumatized and trying to survive <laughs> And uh, and uh, <laughs> I remember when I was at theater school, at, uh, at one point there was a production, like a kind of a musical, and at every rehearsal, the, di- the music director would say, this one, Pascal, don't chant. Like, <laughs> and, kind of, and at the next, next rehearsal, he would say, this song too, just mouth, mouth the words. And the night of the opening, there was just one chant that was left for me to do with the others was uh, with a gazoo. <laughs> and just before we entered the stage, he said, Pascal, you know about the gazoo? Just pretend you're blowing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, please have compassion for moi. <laughs> but uh, the way you chant this is there's one basic note, and when there's a little uh, triangle pointing down, you go down one note. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. And when there's a little arrow or, or triangle pointing up, you go up one. And if the arrow, uh, if the, there's a longer line, 
uh, under a word, it means you just make it a little longer in the singing, right? And if the triangle is a little longer than the short triangle, what does it mean? You go down and you keep it a little longer. And so let's try it. And it's probably going to require joy and compassion and equanimity <laughs> and benevolence. Um, so I'll, I'll chant alone the first line, inviting us to chant, and then we'll jump in together, right? Now let us chant the reflection on universal well-being. May I abide in well-being, in freedom from affliction, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill-will, in freedom from anxiety, and may I maintain well-being in myself. May everyone abide in well-being, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill-will, in freedom from anxiety, and may they maintain well-being in themselves. May all beings be released from all suffering, and may they not be parted from the good fortune they have attained. When they act upon intention, all beings are the owners of their action and inherit its results. Their future is born from such action, companion to such action, and its results will be their home. All actions with intention, be they skillful or harmful, of such acts they will be the heirs. And so just uh, hearing the last uh, part there on equanimity, it's... Um, All beings are the owner of their actions. Actions. Uh, so it's a recognition that there's intention, intention in action, intention to help, intention to harm. Uh, and so many of our actions, words, are uh, have an intention into them. And it's an invitation to really become conscious, really aware of why am I saying this, you know, and how is this going to entangle this heart or... Uh, you know, and it's tricky business. It uh, requires it a lot of careful, equanimous attention, honest attention. Their future is born from such action. This is this is uh, uh, another way that is uh, translated sometimes is beings are born out of their actions. So it's not just that we're related to what we do, but we are. We be, we are what we put out. You know. 
That's what it says in the Buddhist teaching. So that's why we learn to pay really attention, really close attention, so we're not moved by habitual reactivity, habitual patterns of mind, but that we can wake up and decide to not nourish a certain way to be and nourish another one that is uh, beneficial for self and others. And in the other document are phrases, because all these Brahma-viharas, all these four qualities <coughs> can be practiced through phrases in the same way that we've been looking at uh, metta. Was there some missing? Yeah? Okay, so thank you for doing this, and I can leave you mine after. Uh, is everybody has access to it? Yeah. Okay. So, first we... Um, put uh, a lot of phrases related, groups of phrases related to metta, and so you can read this later and see if there's some that uh, talk to you uh, on the first page, and on the second page you see phrases of compassion and so one way to practice to develop compassion is to think of someone who is having uh, difficulties in their life and to offer the sentences, so not shy away, not turn away from, but stay with in the, with balance. So it requires also equanimity to, to stay there and uh, think of somebody who's sick, to think of somebody who's uh, having, um, you know, problems in their life, whatever problems they have, and to say... Um, may your pain and sorrow be eased, or I care about your pain and sorrow, I care about your pain and sorrow, learning how to witness, how to be there, how to, and how this is going to give us strength and help us become better friends to others. And so I'm, I'm going to uh, quickly go down towards the equanimity bit and uh, share just a couple of uh, sentences that have been very useful for me and is actually one that I'm very proud I created myself. <laughs> and uh, and uh, got uh, the seal of approval of uh, Sharon Salzberg, who's <laughs> really well-revered uh, teacher of these Brahma-viharas and uh, of, uh, uh, wisdom. So the first one there, my happiness depends on my response, not on the circumstances of my life. And so for me, that's been really important, uh, dealing with illness, an illness that I didn't want to have, you know, to actually reshape my uh, thinking or belief, you know. And so, uh, and it's been applicable actually in many circumstances that my happiness doesn't re depends on what's happening here. It depends on how I hold it, you know. That at least I can recognize that this is a place where I have uh, some say, you know, some uh, that I might. It's not complete, you know, but I might have some say in my response when I don't get to choose the circumstances. Yeah, and another one that I've used a lot is um, I don't know if it's there actually. I don't see it, but uh, I'll name it, and then you can explore the others. Uh, for other p people to bring equanimity in my heart regarding uh, other people, what they do that I think they should do otherwise, or you know, and so there's a 
there's a few words that I change there, but often I'll say, you have the right to your own journey. You have the right to your own pace. You have the right to your own choices. Because, yeah. and it's, uh, I use it mainly for me to um, kind of reveal the violence of my views. Of they should do this and they should do that, you know. The, the kind of imposing, even if I don't say it in my mind, sometimes I'm imposing something on, on somebody else. And to me, there can be some violence in that, you know, that you should do what I think you should do, you know. And so to bring ease there, like you, I have deep respect for human beings and their journey, and I can decide not to participate in some of the journeys and choices, you're right, of course, but. Uh, deep honoring of processes for beings, you know, knowing that I haven't followed what people have thought I should do, you know, I definitely had my own way of uh, traveling, you know, and my own pace and my own choices, and sometimes they were bad, but, you know, they were making things more complex for myself, but apparently I had to go through that, you know. So it's been bringing a lot of ease to my mind to say, you have the right to your own journey. You have the, I, I have that basic respect for human beings that they can choose what they do, you know. And, uh, and so to give some, someone back their, their right to choose, you know. And still I might be opposing them, you know. I might have a different viewpoint on some things to them, and I might actually actively be promoting a different way, but to still honor that beings have their their way of uh, going about things. You know. And um, there's many sentences in there, and you might see if there's uh, some that I speak to you. And also it might help you create your own, you know, and, uh, if you like to use uh, phrases. So, um, how to finish this uh, well? <coughs> I'm wondering if I shouldn't uh, finish with another poem by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, just to kind of boucle la boucle, you would say in French, loop, loop, loop the loop, or something like that. It might be one that you've heard before. I was thinking of uh, offering it. Uh, tomorrow, but maybe it's <coughs> so it it's uh, it has some length to it. So maybe you want to I don't know do what you want to do. <laughs> Close your eyes or just stay uh, the eyes open. Or and let's see what she has to say here. And it's called Wandering Around in an Albuquerque Airport Terminal. <laughs> After learning my flight was uh, detained for f four hours, I heard the announcement, if anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please Come to the gate immediately. Well, 
one pauses these days. Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An old woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumbled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arms, my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. Shudo, a shu biduk habib ti, stani stani shwe, mim fadlik, shobit siwi. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought her flight had been cancelled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who is picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son. I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mom till uh, we got on the plane and would ride next to her southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. <laughs> Then we called my dad. And he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had ten shared friends. <laughs> Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then. Telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mammal cookies, little powdered sugar, grump, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from, use, uh, from huge coolers, non-alcoholic. And the two little girls for our, from our flight, one African-American, one Mexican, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade, and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves, such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in. 
the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. Thank you for your uh, kind attention, for your practice. Thank you you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.